Good morning. Good morning. If, there was, if there's anybody who wasn't paying attention so far, our theme is unity today. <laughs> if you think you're having a difficult time convincing someone in your church to do something, consider this situation. Tradition claims that Jerusalem's Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built over the cave in which Jesus was said to have been buried. Since the resurrection of Christ should result in unity of all Christians, you would think that unity would be the hallmark of this church. But different groups have been arguing about this church for centuries. In 1752, the Ottoman Sultan issued a law declaring which parts of the church belonged to which groups. And there were six denominations that were involved the Latins, the Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the Syrian Orthodox, the Coptics, and the Ethiopians. Despite the law that the Sultan passed, there is continuous conflict regarding the part of the church. Let me give you an example. There is a ladder that was made of cedar wood propped up against one of the exterior windows of the church. It has been there since 1757, and it has not been moved because none of these six groups can agree who should move it. The rooftop was being controlled by the Ethiopians, but in the 19th century there was an epidemic, so the Ethiopians moved away and the Coptics came in. But in 1970, there was a problem and the Coptics had to move away, and so the Ethiopians came back on top to the roof. And since they didn't want to let go, they installed one monk there at all times, continuously. And since the Coptics didn't want to be left behind, they also installed a monk there on the rooftop. So on the rooftop, there is an Ethiopian monk and a Coptic monk at all times. In July 2002, the Coptic monk was sitting out in his chair in the middle of the day, and because the sun was right on his face, he wanted to move into a shade. So he moved his chair to a shade, and that set off an angry response from the Ethiopian monk. Soon there was shoving and pushing, and soon chairs and iron bars were thrown around. At the end of the fight, 11 of the monks were injured. One of them was unconscious, and one of them had a broken arm. <laughs> Ironically, the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is held by two Muslim families for the last 1,000 years. There is at least no chance that these six denominations will be locked out of the church because there is no fighting with the Muslims there. This morning in a sermon entitled FC Anywhere, we will look at a sermon on oneness. A sermon on oneness. Our text is Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 to 30. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, the main theme that Jesus asked for his followers was that they be united. And he didn't say, well, let them be united like Real Madrid and Barcelona fans are united. I and mean, that, that wasn't the way that he was asking. The 
parameter that he set was that his disciples would be united like the father and son are united. Can you believe what kind of a unity Jesus wanted for his followers? This morning, I've divided the sermon into two parts. In the first part, we will look at causes of disunity. In the second part, we will look at what creates oneness. What creates oneness? So soon after Jesus prayed that prayer, he died, he rose again, he went to heaven, and then the church was formed. And when you read about the early church, it was united. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, and I will read a few verses to show that unity of the church from verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a great picture of unity, but this is not where the church ended. Soon after this, their unity started to sputter. And so for this section of the sermon, I'm going to look at five things that happened that caused disunity in the early church. The first one is what I will call personal gain, and that is in Acts chapter 5, one following. And we know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody was selling their property, brought it in, and they were getting credit for it. And Ananias and Sapphira decided that they wanted to do the same thing and get some credit out of it. So they sold their property and kept behind a part of it, and they gave the rest of it. They got a standing ovation in church for this amazing gift that they gave, but it wasn't the whole thing. And then they were found out, and they unfortunately were purged from the church. Selfish motives. Putting the self in place of Jesus. Putting the self on the throne in place of Jesus. Desire for things, greed and pride. Anything that has the self on the throne. Quincy Jones is a music producer, movie producer, composer who has had 80 Grammy nominations and 28 Grammy wins. In 1985, he had an idea to raise money for African famine relief. So he asked Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie to write a song together. So on the day before the recording of the song, the writing of the song was completed. This song was entitled, We Are the World. The plan was to bring many artists together and have them all sing a piece each of the song and it would be one united beautiful piece. This song would go on to raise $63 million for African famine relief. On the day of the recording, Quincy Jones knew that bringing so many stars together could be a problem because they would all come with their personalities. And so what he did was on his door, he stuck a sign that everybody would see as they walked in for the recording. And that sign said, please leave your egos at the door. 
If we put ourselves and our fleshly desires ahead of the Lord and his mission, there will be disunity. And the solution for a persistently sinful part is to purge it. Right? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if your eye is causing you to sin and it's not, gonna, it's not looking straight, then gouge it out. If your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. He's recommending amputation, but the idea behind it is that sin needs to be radically dealt with. It needs to be purged. The second reason that can cause disunity is racial prejudice. In Acts chapter 6 verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Racial prejudice. Racial prejudice is seen whenever there is more than one race present. It doesn't matter what the race is. It doesn't matter. People in the West think that, well, it depends on what the race No, it doesn't. If there are two races, there's going to be racial prejudice. Not only interracial prejudice, but intra-racial prejudice. In the Hindu system, there are social strata. The Brahmins at the top have no contact with the Shrudras at the bottom and the unscheduled castes and the tribes below that. So there is intra-racial prejudice in the Hindu system. The History Channel program called the Little Ice Age talked about the Vikings that came from Europe and crossed into Greenland in the 10th century. This is 500 years before Columbus went from Europe to North America. The, the people already living there were called the Inuit. And uh, they had probably come from Russia over to Alaska, across North America and into Greenland. The statue of a Viking looms over the fjord at the site of Greenland's first Norse settlement, which was founded by Eric the Red. Unlike the usual colonization that Europe had success with, this colonization ended in failure. The Vikings failed in their colonization of Greenland. Why? According to the History Channel, they said that the Vikings became extinct in that region because they considered the Inuit to be inferior and so were too proud to learn how to fish from them during the winter. And so they didn't get any fish during the winter. Eventually, they became extinct. It's truly amazing to see how the gospel unifies races. And it was just beautiful to see the, the different languages. And, but racial factors can be a hindrance in the hearing of the gospel and can easily lead to a cessation of evangelism. A third reason, a third cause for disunity is legalism. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So then there was this whole discussion of, should we ask these new believers to become Jews first and then become Christians, or can they just become Christians directly? 
And so finally, by the grace of God, they said, okay, let them become Christians directly. They don't need to follow Jewish customs. Legalism is a slow sin that creeps up on us, especially in people that have been Christians for a long time, especially in people that have been good Christians for a long time and have followed all the rules and have dotted their I's and crossed their T's. And then when somebody else comes and they don't dot their I's and don't cross their T's, then we start to make rules for the Christian faith. This is a hard topic because on one side you need some rules for guidance. But on the other side, we can't have legalism. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Colossians 2 verse 16 following. It reads, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In India, there were charismatic churches about 50 years ago that left the mainland traditional nominal Christian churches and they came out and they had free worship and they had great worship. But over the years, what happened was they made their worship a formula and required that that's the way to do worship, even though it started off as a free worship. So their free worship became legalism even though they were fighting against legalism. Anything can become legalistic when we proclaim that it needs to be done a certain way. When we make a principle out of an experience, we have crossed over into legalism. When we make a principle out of an experience, we have crossed over into legalism. In his book, Wild at Heart, John Eldridge makes this observation. He says that the people of Israel came to the Jordan and they were about to enter into the promised land. And the first city that was there was the city of Jericho. So they had this command from God, the, the priests go first and then the Levites and then the people of Israel, they go round. On the first day, they go around the city, come back, and that's it. Second day, they go around the city, come back. On the seventh day, they go seven times around the city. The trumpets blow, everybody screams, the wall falls down, and they rush in, and it was a huge success. That never happened again. It was a successful formula, wasn't it? Why didn't they do it again? Why didn't Joshua say, wow, this is a great idea. Let's do it for every city. Because then he would be making a principle out of an experience. God doesn't have to act the same way with everybody. And when you read scripture, you see how God acts. It is so different with everybody. The fourth cause of Disunity is what is called, what I'll call differential giftedness. Differential giftedness. Let me read some verses from Romans chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. So in Christ, 
We, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then encourage. If it's giving, give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We have different gifts and we need different gifts. A church cannot just function with one gift. Imagine if all of us were just, you know, if, if you were just one big nose, that's it. That was you, one big nose and no other organ. Yeah, you could smell your food, but that's about it. <laughs> the cause of discord in the Corinthian church was this. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. Apollos was a better communicator than Paul was. Paul was a weak communicator. Apollos was an orator. And so there were people that followed Apollos. In a soccer team, there are different roles. There is a goalkeeper. There are sweepers. There is a left fullback, a center back, a right fullback a left wing back, a right wing back, a defending midfielder, center midfielder, attacking midfielder, left winger, right winger, withdrawn forward and center forward. And you need different people on the team. If you have two red cards on the team and there is no defense, your team is going to lose. You need the defenders as much as you need the forwards. Turn your Bibles please to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I will read two verses from there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if we have different gifts, what happens is the more visual gifts or the more public gifts can have pride. And the more private gifts can have the opposite of pride. Let's read verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21 the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. So in that case, the eye and the head have pride where they say, I am the eye or I am the head. I don't need the feet or I don't need the hand. What is the opposite of pride? If it were that straightforward, I wouldn't have asked the question. Right? <laughs> If an exaggerated sense of self is pride, then a diminished sense of self is false humility. A verse that beautifully describes this is Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. So if you think of yourself more highly than you ought, that's pride. If you think of yourself with sober judgment, that's humility. If you think of yourself less than what you are, that's false humility. If Paul said, I can do all things, that would be pride. If he said, Christ can do all things, that is true, but that is false humility. 
But if he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that is humility. So pride is the opposite of false humility. And so you see false humility in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. So these organs here are having false humility. They are downplaying themselves. When we need to think of ourselves with sober judgment, who we are, we have our strengths, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The Fifth thing that can cause disunity are human labels. Human labels. Let me read a couple of verses. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Human labels. You know, we can put human labels on people for anything. If there are only two people existing on earth, you can put a label on each one of them. You can, you can divide based on social, economic, religious, cultural, how they look, their language, their, their family, their profession, everything. You can put labels on anybody, whoever you choose. Back when I was working in a hospital in, um, in Kansas City, we used to take call there. So my call schedule was 36-hour call every third day. So on Monday morning, I would go to work um, at 4.30 in the morning and come back at 8.30 on Tuesday night. Then I would wake up on Wednesday, go at 4.30, come back at 8.30. Thursday I would go at 4.30, come back on Friday at 8.30. So that was our schedule for years. When we are on call, we get a call from the ER. I mean, it's always from the ER. You get a call from the ER. And so all the other specialties, they don't like the ER docs because, you know, they, they keep calling us for just stupid stuff. Okay, you know, just handle this yourself. But no, they don't. <laughs> They call us and we have to go handle it. So with all the other specialties, we talk bad about the ER docs. But then between the medical and the surgical specialties, the surgical specialties always talk bad about the medical specialties. Yeah, those guys come to work at 8 o'clock in the morning. We come at 4.30 in the morning. They leave at 5 in the afternoon. We leave at 8.30 in the evening. So we always talk bad about the medical specialties. And then between the surgical specialties themselves, you can endlessly talk, you know, you can make fun of each other's surgical specialty no end. I must admit that those conversations kept those long nights going when we would do gunshot wounds in the middle of the night. It was great to make fun of some other specialty. But we can put a label on anybody. We can put a label on anybody. And we can divide on any reason. On any reason. There are many things that can divide us and Satan has plenty of options to choose from. Thankfully, there are many things that can unite us and that's what we will look at now 
what creates oneness? What creates oneness? Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. In their 1979 song, Hey You, from the album The Wall, Pink Floyd sang these words, Hey you, out there on the road, always doing what you're told, can you help me? Hey you, out there beyond the wall, breaking bottles in the hall, can you help me? Hey you, don't tell me there's no hope at all, together we stand, divided we fall. Together we stand, divided we fall. Paul said that we have to stand firm in the one spirit. Why do we have to stand firm in the one spirit? And that is because there are many reasons to be disunited. The first way that we can, that unity can be created is through conversion and baptism. Conversion and baptism. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 to 6 it says, There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. It is absolutely amazing to see the unity in the spirit and see different cultures come together and worship together. I wonder if when we go to heaven, we will still maintain our cultural differences. That'll be fun. Yeah. It's amazing the way formerly antagonistic groups can come together because of the gospel. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who, along with her father and her other family members, helped Jews escape the Nazi Holocaust during World War II, and they were imprisoned for it. In her book, Tramp for the Lord, she writes about a guard that she met after the war. She was speaking at a church in Munich, and after the message, the guard comes over and says that he was a guard at Ravensbrück where her sister was tortured and killed. And he put out his hand asking for her forgiveness. She writes that for a moment she hesitated as she recalled his cruelty against her sister and those around her. But knowing God's warning to forgive or not be forgiven and still not feeling the ability to lift her hand towards him, she prayed and said, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. You supply the feeling. And as she woodenly thrust her hand into the hand of the God, the former God from Ravensbrook, she says that the warmth of God's love flowed through her and into the guard. It's amazing to see how formerly antagonistic people can come together through the power of God. The second way that we are united in Christ is through concern, through concern. Once a person becomes a Christian, they become part of the Christian family. It's a verse that we read before, Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Let's read a verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. For many believers, for many new believers, the Christian community may be the only community they have. Especially if they are in cultures where they are disowned by their family because of their Christian faith. Is it possible for us to have less of a familial love for our Christian community than we have for our own family? Right? We have a certain love for our own family. Our, our spouse, our kids, our parents, we have a certain kind of love. But now we have been called into a bigger family, into a new citizenship, into a new relationship. And we have been called to have a bigger familial relationship with this new community. And it is not a natural relationship. It is not a blood relationship. Is there a chance that that love that we have for our community is smaller than the love we have for our family? And if it is, should we improve on our love for our community? Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says this, By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, by loving one another, we will show that we are the disciples of Jesus. Our love for the family of God will give evidence that we are in the family of God. A love for the family of God will give evidence that we are in the family of God. The third way that we can be united is through suffering. And we've read these verses before. Philippians chapter 1, 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul was in a Roman prison as he wrote this. In fact, in the verses before verse 27, he says, I want to go and be with Christ. I want to die, but I know that I may stay here. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9 reads, Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In March 2004, there were the Madrid train bombings that killed 193 people and injured 2,000. In 2017, a 22-year-old fanatic drove a van into pedestrians on La Rambla in Barcelona, Spain, killing 13 people and injuring at least 130 others. On September 11, 2001, was the worst terrorist attack on American soil. 
On uh, September 12, 2001, the country united like it had never united before. Because there is something in common suffering that causes a unity. In the church that we were in, in Kansas City, there was a two-year-old that had cancer. And the church had come together to pray for this two-year-old. And she went through chemo and all this medical treatment and the church came together. They prayed for her. They fasted for her. They were rooting for this young family, but the kid died. But the unity that that caused in the church as a result of the suffering was incredible. Comparing pleasure and pain, C.S. Lewis writes this. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. He whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our planes. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Since pain is a more powerful stimulator than pleasure, is it possible that common suffering is a greater uniter than common joy. The fourth way that we can be united is because we have a common enemy. When terrorist attacks happened in different countries, the countries recognized that it was all from a same enemy. And so they got united because they had a common enemy. A foe of a foe is a friend. So every person that becomes a Christian automatically has unity with another Christian because we have a common enemy in Satan. So when there is persecution in churches in India, in spite of the hundreds of denominations, when there is persecution against Christians, all the Christians unite against the persecution. Because that suffering, there is one enemy now, and we all unite against the one enemy. I wonder if having a common enemy is a better uniter than having a common friend. So if there is division between two people, find a common enemy to oppose. There is a brilliant tactic that I learned from Paul. And this is in Acts chapter 23, and I've used this to great effect at my workplace. Acts chapter 23. Hopefully, people from my work don't listen to the sermon. Look at this amazing principle that Paul used, okay? Acts chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God strike you, you whitewashed wall. I love that, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection from the dead. 
absolutely brilliant. What he did is he took the opposition, split the opposition, sided with one side, and because he sided with one side, now they both have a common enemy. Pharisees and Paul have a common enemy in the uh, uh, Sadducees. You see that, how brilliant that is? A common enemy is a great way to be united. The spiritual armor talks about spiritual warfare against our common enemy. And it's a verse that we've read before, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is why prayer is so powerful. It stands up against the enemy. And in verse 18 of that passage it says and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people so the idea there is about the Roman army and how they used to do warfare so they had a four foot tall shield it was made of wood and the outer part of the shield was covered in leather so what they used to do before a war is they would dip their shields in water so that that leather would be wetted and if there was a fiery dart or a fiery arrow it would get extinguished. And so the way that they would organize themselves was the first line of the Roman army would stand with their four foot tall shield in front of them. The second line would stand with their shield above them covering the head of the first line the third line would stand in front covering the head of the second line and part of their own heads and so on till the very end and as long as they stayed united in that formation they were practically invincible it is in prayer that we can be absolutely united John Phillips in his book Exploring Romans writes these words, It is a part of the genius of Christianity that any believer can become a warrior in the battle at any time and in any place and make his influence count to the ends of the earth and high in the heavenly places simply by engaging in prayer. By praying for missionaries, a believer can place himself in a canoe in the Amazon, in an igloo in the Arctic, in a tent in the Sahara, in a submarine in the bottom of the ocean, in a plane high in the stratosphere. He can ward off from the missionary dangers in the jungle, diseases in the city slum, disasters on the deep. He can arm the missionary's witness with supernatural power, lift him from the depths of despondency, rout the un unseen forces that lurk in the spirit world, and strengthen his hand in God. By praying in the spirit, the exercised believer can conquer time and space and have a share in the battle. The fifth way that we can be united is by having a common mission. By having a common mission. Let me read Philippians chapter 1 verse 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean for the faith of the gospel? 
There are several meanings to it, but in the context of opposition to the church, it means an advance of the gospel. An advance of the gospel. I believe that the primary purpose of the church is to glorify God through the advance of the gospel. <clears throat> Everything else is true and necessary, but it's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is the advance of the gospel. The singing, the preaching, the fellowship, everything else complements that. If that were not the case, the church would have ended with 120 people in the upper room. The secondary purposes of the church are completely fulfilled only when the primary purpose is fulfilled. In fact, this was the first message of Jesus. So in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 it reads, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. This was his first message and his last command in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, Go into all the world and make disciples. It's not go into all the world and have fellowship and singing and, you know, bake sales. No, no. It was go make disciples. That is the primary function of the church. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came that they may have life. Yes, he did walk on water. Yes, he did feed 5,000. Yes, he did heal people. But the primary purpose was to advance the kingdom of God. So Acts, in Acts, the church was a missionary church. The common goal of any organization is best fulfilled when that goal exists in its components. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the common goal of an organization is best fulfilled when that common goal exists in every component of that organization. So for example, in a football team, it's always funny to me how football teams are named FC Barcelona, you know, football club Barcelona, FC whatever, FC this, FC that. Yes, they change it out by saying Real Madrid CF. Yep, that's a big change. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what FC it is, it could be FC anywhere. But the idea is that any soccer team's main purpose is to put the ball into the opposing team's net. That is the purpose, that's the goal, pun intended. If that is not the goal, whether you're a forward who gets to kick that ball into the goal, or if you're the defender who tries to kick the ball forward, that is the main purpose. If you don't get the ball into the opposing team's net, your team is gonna lose. A church that does not have missionary evangelism as its primary focus is like a football team that is just kicking the ball around in midfield and not going anywhere. I wish all churches behaved as missionary churches. We have such a problem in some of our churches where we have to beg our believers, uh, please come for the early service, please come for the late service, because if you come for the middle service, the new believers can't come. But we have to beg them and beg them and beg them. Why do we have to beg them? 
Why can't we just say, well, this is the goal of the church, it's evangelism. Don't you care about evangelism? If, if they did, then they would automatically come on different times. One of the greatest methods that Satan uses to distract us from the common goal is by promoting disunity. The pyramids of Giza are one of the more famous structures of the world. They were more than just royal tombs. They represented dignity and power of kings. And building the pyramid was a national project. The task of quarrying, moving, setting, and sculpting the huge amount of stone used to build the pyramids was accomplished by not just one person. There were bakers and carpenters and water carriers and others that were needed for the project. How many people were involved in this project? When Greek historian Herodotus visited Giza in 450 BC, he was told by Egyptian priests that the Great Pyramid had taken 400,000 men 20 years to build, working in three-month shifts 100,000 men at a time. They had one goal, one mission, and they all united around that one mission. The one thing Jesus wants from his followers was to be united, and in that high priestly prayer we see that. The disunity of the six denominations of Christians at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in stark contrast to the unity of the Egyptians as they pursued one common goal. There are numerous ways we can be disunited. But if we have one Lord and are part of one family with one mission of saving the lost against a common enemy that will eventually be defeated, there is no end to what the Lord can achieve through us. Thank you.